of them as well. So Todd, you come and preach this morning what God has laid on your heart, and just thankful that you're here. All right, so when you think of Africa, any of you have any like fears? If you thought, I'm going to Africa, what would you be afraid of? Snakes, what else? Spiders, Spiders. what else? Food. Food, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Violence. All right, so those are, those are all valid things that exist in Zambia. So when people think about those fears, they are there, and we have seen all of those things. Uh, they, they have played a large role in the life of our family since we arrived in Zambia in August of 2007. We were home uh, a few years ago, came home for a short furlough, and then this thing called COVID hit, and we weren't able to return back to Zambia. We couldn't get out of the country and get into Zambia. So we were, what was supposed to be three and a half months, ended up being eight months here in the States. So we returned back, and we are in Zambia. It's the end of July, August 1st, I think. It was my birthday, and friends of ours were like, hey, why don't you come over to the house? You just return home. This will save Kathy having to cook a meal. And so we still had Paul, our youngest, with us. So we went over there for three and a half hours, left the, left the house, and we have two Rottweilers that were watching over the property. We live in a compound. We have a uh, wall fence around us, a, a brick wall all the way around, glass on top of the wall kind of thing. Uh, burglar bars on our windows of our home. So we were gone for three and a half hours. When we came back, the electricity was off for the whole town. And so we opened up our, slid open the front gate, and our Rottweilers were there to greet us, and they were very angry, which is not typical of them. So we thought that was strange. I drove down. I unlocked the padlock to our front door, and as I opened the door and my uh, light from my phone shone in, I could see things all over the floor. Someone had broken in and had been in our home. So I quickly walked through the house to the back door, unlocked so I could turn our generator on so we would have power in the house. And as soon as I did that, I headed back to my bedroom because I have a loaded 12-gauge shotgun back there. And I thought, I want to make sure that that is still there because if, you know, if they stole, stole that. So I head back. The whole house has just been gone through, you know, drawers open, closets open, refrigerator door was open. They, would, they were in the house long enough to eat food while they were in there. I get back to the bedroom and the shotgun is gone. And I right away think in my mind, Kathy's with me, where's Paul? He's gone outside and they have my loaded shotgun. And, you know, so that comes through my mind, the safety of my kid Right away, Paul comes into the bedroom, and he's holding the shotgun case. He says, Dad, they, they have the, had the shotgun. So I said, show me. I went to the backyard. The Rottweilers are with us, so I knew no one's in the yard. And we could see things strewn through the yard. My dog, the, the biggest male Rottweiler, his name was Chance, because when you came on the property, you had one chance. Okay? <laughs> so... We walk around, we could see that the dogs, obviously, they, someone had probably been feeding them at the top of the property where the gate was, and they came in the bottom of the property, but at some point, the dogs realized there were people on the property, and so they were fleeing for their lives, probably, as Chance and Duchess were chasing them, and when they went to go over the wall, the shotgun fell out of the case, and so when I got to the wall where Paul showed me he found the case, I turned around, the shotgun was in the bushes, 
And obviously, they're not going to leave that unless there's a good reason. And I think, I think the uh, Rottweiler, we won't know. Uh, uh, we may never know. Um, maybe when we get to heaven, the Lord will let us know if, if someone got bit. I hope so. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, I tell the story because and I'll, I'll come back to it in a bit. But those kind of things happen. There's not a day that I leave the property and I return at night that I don't think about that. That I don't expect to find that my house has been ransacked. When we left to come back to the States this time, we said goodbye to our dogs. We said goodbye to everything we own because that's just the reality of it. You don't know when you return if you're going to find those things, all right? What's the purpose of my message for you this morning? I want you to understand that each individual Christian has the opportunity and privilege to intentionally pursue missions. All right, I'll say that again. Each individual Christian has the opportunity and privilege to intentionally pursue missions. I have a lot of former students in with me. Um, David, did I prepare you to play soccer on the soccer field? All right. Preparation has always been a big part of my life. When I know that there's something that has to be accomplished, I'm going to make sure with soccer practice that my guys were ready to play. And they came ready to play because they wanted the same thing. Missions is the same thing. You have to be intentional about it, and you will get out of it what you put into it. We've already read the passage this morning, but I want to go back to that. You can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is writing to a young Timothy in this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And then down in verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity and privilege of being here uh, today in church. I pray that you would use uh, your word uh, in the lives of the people here today. I pray that you would encourage us to be intentional, intentional about missions, that we would desire to share uh, the love of Christ and the gospel with our friends, our family members, co-workers, those we come in contact uh, in the community, and that you might lead even some of us out onto a mission field somewhere to share the gospel there. Well, thank you for what's accomplished here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's words to Timothy, they give us the impression that Paul understood Christ. So I'm going to move this down a little bit. Sorry. All right. So, can you hear me? All right. Um, so we get the impression he understood crisis, and he wanted Timothy to be assured that he need not be afraid. Now, most of us remember the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, and the images that went across the airwaves. Firefighters, policemen, paramedics quickly arrive at the scene, smoke and dust filling the air. People were crying, running away from the Twin Towers, but these men and women were running to the towers. They were running to the trouble because they had people to save that day. Lindsay Whitehurst published this account on July 18, 2022, detailing a far different scenario. Quote, a total of 376 officers converged on Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, more than the entire police force in a mid-sized American city 
like Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or Tempe, Arizona. But for more than 70 minutes on May 24th, not one stopped the shooter. Amid the sounds of continuing gunfire emanating from the elementary school, they waited. By the time they entered and killed 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, 19 children and two teachers were dead or mortally wounded. Waiting costs lives. We see that waiting costs lives. If we're going to be effective, we have to run to the crisis and be willing to breathe the air of crisis if people are going to be saved. One of my favorite scenes from the miniseries Band of Brothers, it follows Dick Winters of Easy Company of the 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which was part of the 101st Airborne Division. Winters gives a command to his men to fix bayonets because they were going to charge an enemy position that was at a crossroads. They knew that the Germans were there. They didn't know how many were at that site. And so when the um, command was given for the men to move forward, Winters, he takes off running, and he's far ahead of the rest of the men. He runs across an open field. He comes up over a rise. He sees a German soldier. He raises his rifle, and he begins firing. Okay, I'll come back to that story in just a few minutes. Now, because I'm a student of war, I love reading a story about heroic achievements, I've tried over the years to imitate some of these individual actions. Now, years ago, I went to a paintball war with my youth group. All right, The youth leaders decided they were going to take on the guys in the youth group. And so uh, what it was, we had a bunker, they had a bunker, there were a lot of obstacles in between. When they blow the whistle whoever wipes out the other team is going to win. And so I've been on many paintball activities up to that point. I know that people don't like to get hit by a paintball, and so they're thinking about that. So I said, all right, here's the plan. As soon as the whistle blows, we are going to race across, and we're going to get to their bunker before they have time to do anything. And then we'll surround them, and we'll wipe them out, and we'll win. And they agreed, so let's do this. So the whistle blows, and I take off, and I'm dodging in and out of the, the different obstacles, and I come behind the small wooden structure, the bunker's right ahead of me, and just as I had said, no one had come out of the bunker yet. So the first kid in the youth group comes out, I hit him, and then shortly thereafter, I am shot 24 times. I had, <laughs> I had welts on top of welts. I actually was bleeding, I got hit so many times. I look around me, there's no one with me. I'm all alone. So I walk back through, and I, I go to the back, and afterwards, you know, we lose. And I'm looking at the guys, and I said, we had a plan. What happened? And they said, Todd, we were, we were afraid. And so we stayed in the bunker. All right. So alone, I was no match for the opposing team. Staying back because of fear did not help the team win. We still lost. Now, as missionaries, many times over the years, uh, my company or my team has been comprised of just my wife and kids. When I face a crisis, as I mentioned before, I don't typically think of the risk for myself when I'm alone, but when my family is in the middle of the crisis, I can tell you those have been the hardest times. As a husband, as a dad, I can tell you I want to protect my family. I want to make things better, but sometimes that's just not possible. One year after being on the mission field, I was at a Bible college uh, five minutes away from the house. We were having uh, prayer for the morning. They were going to have a meeting. I get a phone call on my phone. It's my nine-year-old daughter, Emily, crying, saying, Daddy, there are men at the home with guns. All right, those type of things, again, have happened to us over and over again on the mission field. We made it. I'm still around. So things were okay. Um, 
You never see the image of a firefighter putting on a fireman's suit on his kid or a policeman putting a uniform on his kid or a paramedic uh, saying, hey, let's go to work today to one of his children, jump in an ambulance and take off. But the missionary, they do that. They take their kids with them. My kids did not have a choice. When we were headed to Zambia, they were coming with us. And so they have had to breathe the air of crisis just like I have had to breathe. And those, as I said before, that's the most difficult thing that we have had to deal with. Our 17 years in Zambia, they've been filled with one crisis after another, kids in tow, facing the conflict. It's a true statement that a missionary lives in a world where they continually breathe the air of crisis. In his book, Risk is Right, John Piper writes that safety is a mirage. The fact is we live in a broken world. Many who choose not to serve the Lord on a foreign mission field because of fear are missing the point. They face risk all around them every single day. So you're facing risk, whether you like it or not, uh, and you have a choice to do so, where you're going to be and what you are going to do. Jim Elliott, uh, missionary to Ecuador, to the Aka Indians, prayed this, Father, make me a crisis man. And he willingly gave his life so that others could be saved. The missionary willingly charges to the front of the fight. We run to trouble when we see it. This is who we are. I've learned I'm just not that effective of a fighter when I'm alone. Like I said, unlike a firefighter or policeman, we charge into that crisis carrying our family in tow. They also have to gear up. They also breathe the air of crisis. A missionary does not wait He charges ahead to face the crisis, but he's not alone because the Lord is with him. He is more effective if he has a band of brothers or sisters that come to assist or who are back at home manning the supply line. Let me ask you a question, brief pause here. You support missionaries. Do you take the time to pray for the missionary wife and the missionary kids, just as you would pray for the husband? Do you think about them? Do you think about the fact that they are breathing that air of crisis on a daily basis. I would encourage you to think about that. My kids are all grown up and out of the home. They live in the USA. I asked them recently, was the risk worth it? You know, kids don't get the opportunity to uh, have that choice when they go to the mission field. So I wanted to know what their thoughts were. And each one said, though it was tough, they'd gladly do it again, that they had a better childhood than anyone that they know. Now, unlike my paintball experience when I found myself all alone, surrounded by the enemy as a missionary, I've never been alone. With God, I'm always in the majority. Former Army Ranger Jeff Struker, who was at the Battle of Mogadishu, famous for uh, the book and movie Black Hawk Down, he wrote in his book, The Road to Unafraid, when you have the support of Jesus Christ, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Remember when Paul was in trouble in the book of Acts, and he felt alone. In Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, this is the response given to Paul. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Fear should always breed trust and hope for the Christian, always. Now, we had prayed for a teammate to join us in the eastern province of Zambia for over 10 years. The Lord has seen fit to answer that prayer through a great missionary community that has come to the city of Chapada. 
where we can fellowship with other like-minded individuals, get together for Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, birthday parties, a cup of coffee, whatever that may be. They are not our teammates per se, but they have been a great blessing to us. So sometimes you pray a prayer specifically, and the Lord answers that prayer in a far different way than you would even think about. Another way that we didn't anticipate the prayer being answered was through short-term mission teams. You saw our presentation. You saw all the faces of the team members that have come to join us. Short-term missionaries can and do give necessary support. We have seen amazing fruit from these teams. Now back to the World War II story in Dick Winters. As I said before, he had just come over a rise. There's German soldiers in front of him. He is firing his rifle. He empties two clips into the enemy. He's getting ready to reload his rifle just as his team of soldiers come up behind him with machine guns, mortars, rifle, and they, they start pouring enemy uh, fire down on the enemy soldiers, and before long, they're able to defeat the enemy. That's kind of what short-term missions has done for us. Uh, just when the fighting gets the toughest, the fiercest on the mission field, the Lord has sent us short-term mission teams uh, to come up behind us as a band of brothers. Now, Easy Company that Dick Winters was a part of, they became known as a band of brothers. Where one man went, the others were sure to follow. Dick Winters' tagline was, follow me. I love that. I can echo what Dick Winters said. When talking to one of his grandchildren, they said, Granddad, are you a hero? And he said, I'm not a hero, but I've served with a company of heroes. Since we arrived on the field 16 years ago, we have hosted over 300 visitors, including 18 teams, two homeschool teachers, three interns, and several others who stayed with us for an extended period of time. Uh, They have been a tremendous blessing uh, to our family. They've been that line of brothers that come up behind us just when the fighting gets the fiercest. Now remember, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Medical missions provides a vehicle for the advancement of the gospel by drawing large crowds of people that otherwise might never darken the door of a church. As the people are sitting in registration, we're sharing the gospel. As they're waiting throughout the day, we're sharing the gospel with them. The goal when we have people come, whether it be for uh, teaching on leadership or coming for a medical team, whatever it may be, The goal is when we preach the gospel, you saw that funeral, thousands of people come for a funeral in the Zambian village. You don't see funerals like that here. But when they come, I have the opportunity to preach the gospel. We don't always see people saved right then and there when I'm preaching, but what it does, it puts a stone in the person's shoe. And they start to think about what they have heard. We preach the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We preach it And we allow the Holy Spirit to work in the heart of the people, convicting them of their sin and convincing them of their need of a Savior. And then when they think about their life and their troubles, they may come and attend one of our churches. You saw the video of Easter Sunday this year. 170 first-time visitors. It blew my mind. Uh, Our church is just like your church. Uh, 15 minutes before the service, you look around, you're like, no one's coming. And then all of a sudden, uh, you look and it's, it's full. And that was this Easter Sunday. Uh, we were just amazed at how many people came. And we, we believe, we attribute it to the fact of the opportunity I've had of preaching at large funerals and then these medical mission teams. Zambians are very religious. Easter Sunday, they think, I should be in church. I've been to Pastor Beeman's church before. 
let's go there on Sunday. And they show up, and it affords one more opportunity to preach the gospel, to put one more stone in the shoe, to make them contemplate their own uh, eternity. Now let me ask you this. Are you willing to be a crisis man or woman for the Lord? Now maybe you're saying, I'm not convinced. What I've heard so far makes me think that missions is just the life of trouble. That's very true. But we run to trouble because, as Paul said to Timothy, I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The psalmist echoes the same. Psalm 37, 23, and 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. And then Psalm 46, verse 10 and 11 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And then this promise in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Is the risk worth it? Breathing the air of crisis on a continual basis, as you've heard already and as you can imagine, you told me the fears that you think about when you think of Africa. So we know that missions can be hazardous. Is the risk worth it? I think back when the Lord called us to missions. I had to leave these guys behind. That was hard for me. Because <laughs> my former students, they know how much I cared for them. But the Lord gave me, you can see, a hundredfold what I left behind. Is the risk worth it? You know, people don't always come to know the Lord as their Savior the first time you share the gospel. So when we first arrived in the eastern province, I would... I. Chief Manuk was actually my landlord. We pay rent. We live in his house in town. And so I got to know him through that. And then I thought, why don't I go out and visit his village area? That might be a good opportunity for me to plant a church out there. So I would go out to the chief's uh, home where he lives. They call it a palace. It looks kind of like a glorified chicken coop, I tell people. Uh, it's, it's nothing nice out in the village. But I would go. He sits under a tree. In a chair, I'd go sit with him and I would meet different village leaders as they would come through. Getting to know the culture, getting to know different people, and thinking about where the Lord would have us to start a church. And so uh, I went to him one day and I I was like, Chief, I want to begin a Bible study. I want to plant a church in your kingdom. Here's the criteria of the village I'm looking for. And so I, I went through all the different things. I, I'd love it to be near a school. I want it to be well off the beaten path. I want it to be a place that's a bottleneck area where people have to walk through and they're going to see, hey, there's a missionary there. There's somebody there and wonder about us. And so he said, I, I have a place. So he sent some of his men with me. They, they drove me down this road towards the village of Chijezo. And road is a very loose term, okay? As we're driving... There's weeds like bent over and we're kind of going through this path and I'm thinking, I don't, under, I don't think the chief understood uh, what I was saying because I'd like there to be people, you know, where <laughs> I put a church. And so we, we drive, uh, it's about four miles off the main road 
and all of a sudden it opens up into a, a, a village area. There's a school on the side. We drive through, and the only re- religious institution in that area was a Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witness. And I thought, what an opportunity uh, to be able to come combat them. I know that they don't believe anything like what we believe. They're not Pentecostal. They're not Roman Catholic. They're so far from the truth, not the others are close. But it, it was a great place for us to be able to start our first ministry because the people there don't know us at all. And so I, I met with a headman there, gave him a gift, and asked permission to start a Bible study there in his village, and he granted that permission. Well, as you are driving to the village of Chijezo each time, you pass a local clinic. And so I, I was getting to know the people, so I stopped in at the clinic to meet the clinic officers there, and that's the first time I met Jolly Mtonga. This is back in 20, 2011, 2012. So I met Jolly. I met his wife, Leah. She also worked at the clinic, and I said, look, I'm starting a ministry in Chijezo. I'd love for you to come sometime if you'd like to come. He never would come, but each time I would see him, I'd invite him, say, Jolly, you know, you should come to church. Years go by. Um, we are, we used the medical mission team in 2017 at our church in Chijezo, and a month after that, three village leaders came from the village of Muma to our church one Sunday morning. They said, we like what you have here. We want this in our village. Would you come? Now, they weren't asking for a church. They were asking for all the things that come with Pastor Beeman, uh, medical mission teams, uh, fresh drinking water, different things, clothing, whatever it is that we give out. And I understand that, and that's okay. And so I said, I don't know where your village is, but you know, if you take me there, let me take a look at it or whatever. And so they showed me where the village was at, and they said, come at this certain time, and uh, we'll show you uh, what we, what." We, our village is all about. And so the very first time I go out there, there's over 100 people from Muma Village waiting for me, asking me to start a church in their area. So I said, sure, we'll do that. They gifted us land on the very day where we were going to be able to uh, put our church buildings, and that's where we have them today. And so you also have to pass the clinic going to Muma. So I would tell Jolly, hey, we got a church here in Muma, church in Chijezo, you should come. His wife, Leah, very sour demeanor, not interested in talking to me at all, not interested in anything about the gospel. And so we're like, okay. So in 2018, we're having another medical team, but this time we're having it on the site there at Muma because we wanted people to see that a church was being started there and we wanted to draw people from the surrounding community so maybe they would come. So as we were going out one day, one of the medical doctors said, Todd, we pass this clinic every day, but we're having clinic, and we are just jam-packed with people, but there are no people at the clinic. I'd love to stop in at the clinic and see why people aren't going and, and see what they have there. I said, sure, it's a good idea. So we stopped in, and Jolly and Leah were there. We actually, you know, so we meet them. The doctor gets some pictures with Jolly, and we go on our way to the clinic. 2019 rolls around. The U.S. Embassy contacts the Americans living in Chapada, there aren't that many of us, and they wanted to come and visit that area just so they could get to know the Americans living in the eastern province. One of my friends, who's also a missionary, said, wouldn't it be good, instead of them coming to our houses, that we tell them the coordinates of our churches so that they go out there and we have the opportunity to share the gospel. And so that's a good idea. Let's do that. So I went out to Muma, and I was waiting 
there, and when I reach Muma, Jolly is there. The village grapevine is an amazing thing. So he hears that the uh, American embassy is coming out that way, so he wants to meet with them to see if USAID would give money to build a new maternity ward at the clinic. So that was his purpose for being there. So the embassy comes out, Jolly tries to talk to them, they're not interested. Uh, they leave, and Jolly, uh, I, I go and greet him, and he said, Pastor, all these years I've not, I've never been to any of your church sites. I've not been to Chijezo, I've not been to Muma. This is impressive, uh, what you're doing. I said, well, we have Bible study on Friday, the church on Sunday, you should come. Not thinking he would come, because for years I've been inviting him to come, and he's not been interested. That Friday, Jolly comes. I preach the gospel, I could tell he was under conviction. Now, Zambians are much different than you. They're very emotional. When they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sometimes they laugh. uh, They make noises, all kinds of different things because they don't know what to do with this conviction. And so Jolly was kind of this way. Sunday, he's there at church. The next Friday, he's at Bible study. The next Sunday, he's at church. At the end of the service on the second Sunday, he's there. He raises his hand and he says, Pastor, I'd like to speak to the people. Now, I don't ever allow that typically because you never know what someone's going to say. But I thought, Jolly, he's 65. He's revered by the people. He's a man of status. I'll go ahead and let him speak, see what he has to say. So he stands up and he says, you all know me. I have been a clinic officer here in this area for a long time, and I use my uh, position for my own selfishness. I have 17 children from many different women. I have had as many as four or five wives. He said, I only have one now. And he said, I want you to know that I've given my life to Christ and my life is going to be different from now on. I'm going to have a different legacy. That's a pretty good testimony, okay? So uh, we continue on. Every week, Jolly is coming to the services, Friday, Sunday. He said, Pastor, we should have more people coming. Uh, Could we do, like, give a gift to whoever brings the most visitors or something like that? I said, sure, we can do that. So I bought a bunch of clothing soap that's really cheap, and I would give out bar soap to people who brought visitors. And every time, Jolly would bring the most. He was using now his position at the clinic to invite people to come to church. But he's also bothered because um, his wife is not coming. So he's trying to figure out a way. Now, backtrack. I told you in the beginning that we were robbed right when we returned from our COVID furlough. The next day, we go to church. Sunday morning, Jolly is there waiting for me. He says, Pastor, I got to talk to you. He said, you've been gone all this time. I was afraid I wasn't a Christian and, a, and I would die and go to hell. And so he said, can, can we talk so we can make sure? So I sit down with him and I, I share the gospel with him again. And I give him um, God's bridge to eternal life track. I said, take that home and, and read it, look over it. And so the next service, he comes back. He says, Pastor, I know I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm all set but I'm really concerned about my wife and friends, and they're, they're not coming. I said, well, it's now time for you to get baptized, and we're having, we're having a class on baptism, and we're going to be holding a baptism in November, and you should invite your wife and your friends and family to come for the baptism. I think they would come to see that because it's a very special occasion. And so in November, uh, the baptism service is held, and Jolly's wife is there, and several of his good friends and his family members are there. So I baptize Jolly, He's so excited. He's saying, Pastor, I know you have these medical teams coming. I'm getting ready to retire in December, and I want to use the rest of my life to assist you with these medical teams. And so that that would be a legacy that people remember me for. 
And then my wife, she heads home to the States in January to take our son Paul back here. I go to church. It's a Sunday. After church, Jolly says, I want to talk to you. And he said, could you meet me at my garden site? And I said, sure. So I drive over to his garden site, and there's about a 1,000 tomato plants that he's planted. He's showing me them. He says, my son, Sonoya, just graduated from medical school, but he can't start practicing medicine until he has his license, and it costs X amount of money. Would you loan me the money, and then when I sell the tomatoes, I'll pay you back? And I said, Jolly, I'm sorry. I've made it. Uh, really a rule of mine that I don't loan money to people in the church because there's hundreds of you and there's one of me, and if I loan money to you, I have to loan to everybody, and it just doesn't work out well. He says, Pastor, I understand. He said, I know the Lord will provide. It's okay. So I go, I leave, go on my way. Four days later, I come down with COVID. Really sick. I'm in bed for three weeks. Can't really function well at all. And I get a, an email from or WhatsApp from my friend Jack Mitchell, and he says, because of COVID, one of our medical teams has been canceled. It was supposed to be in three weeks. I know we're coming to Zambia in July, but could we come to Zambia in three weeks? Now, this is still during the middle of me recovering from COVID. I'm alone. Kathy's not there yet. She would, have, she would return by the time the team would come, but how do you say no to that opportunity? Uh, when the Lord brings something uh, to you like that. So I said, Jack, we'll do it. So I immediately text Jolly and said, we have a medical team coming in three weeks' time. I hope you'll be ready for it. His wife, Leah, responds back to me and says, my husband is very sick. He is not well. And so I contact the, the people out in the village, and they say, yeah, we went and visited him, and he's really, really sick. So I, I called Asan, and I said, let's go out to the village, and let's meet up with Jolly and see how he's doing so we drive out, go to his home, and uh, Leah greets us at the door. We sit in the, the sitting area, and Jolly comes out of the bedroom. And I can tell you, he was a dead man walking. Very ashen, had lost uh, probably 20, 30 pounds of weight in just the short time I had seen him. Probably uh, he had COVID as well, we're not really sure. And uh, he comes and sits down, we pray for him, I read some scripture with him, just encourage him, and he looks at me and says, Pastor, I know that medical team is coming uh, in just two weeks' time. I hope to be there to help you. And after he says that, his wife says, Pastor, if my husband is too ill to help you, I will take his place. I will go and help you. Um, I, we leave, say our goodbyes, and that night, Jolly passed away. I can tell you, <laughs> my heart has never been so broken because so much had changed in Jolly's life. And we had seen so much fruit. And his desire was to serve the Lord uh, with the rest of his life. I do the funeral. Probably 5,000 people came to Jolly's funeral. He was so well known. He being dead yet speaketh. The opportunity to share the gospel with all his friends and family there. The medical team arrives. I'm driving up to the church, not sure what's going to happen, you know, I'm still recovering, and Leah is there with her son, Sonoya, to help us. The team comes, they're there for two weeks, they're able to be with us during one of our Sunday services, and we have so many people that have to help us with interpreting and things in the village that we often have to ask, 
people that live in that area for help. They may not be a Christian. They could be a Jehovah's Witness, a Catholic, or whatever, but we need interpreters that can speak English. And so uh, we, we have them come. We pay them to be there, but we require that they come on Sunday to our church service. That's, that's part of the deal. You have to come uh, to this. And then our church people know that these people are unsaved, and, the, and our team members know, and they're, they're trying to witness to them during, during the team. And so on that Sunday, sitting in the front row, Leah and Sonoya, and I preach the gospel. And they come under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I ask for a show of hands at the end if there's anyone wanted to accept Christ. And Leah and Sonoya raise their hands. I baptize Leah and uh, four more of Jolly's family members that year. Since that time, double that number. Leah became a member of our church at MUMA. She's the chair lady of the lady trustees in our church now. She has been a part of nine medical mission teams since the death of her husband. Uh, her demeanor totally changed. Uh, someone that was so sour before she became a Christian is just a lovely woman. Uh, so it's just been amazing to see what the Lord has done. So is the risk worth it? Absolutely. Sometimes you don't see the fruit right away, but that doesn't mean you quit. You keep trying and trying and trying. I mentioned before the different problems that we've had in the mission field and the, the, the fears that you go through and such, but that doesn't stop people from coming. As I said, this year we'll be hosting two medical mission teams, two building teams. Camps Abroad from the Wilds is coming. Two individuals are coming for an extended stay, as well as some others. Our door is always open. So I'd ask you, come breathe the air of crisis in Zambia with us. Maybe the Lord has St. Albans as your mission field. Are you taking advantage of that opportunity? The door may be open to another place. Are you willing to go? Everyone can pray for their missionaries. As I mentioned before, do you take the time to pray for the wife and children of the missionaries you support? Everyone can give towards missions. But it's not just giving money. This can involve giving of your time, of your treasure, or of your talent. This is a very intentional act. It's very easy to put money in an offering plate. It's much more difficult to give your time and your talent to the mission field. I had someone say to me, hey, you know, it costs a lot of money to go to Zambia on a mission team. Why don't I just drop that money in the plate? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't you appreciate that? And I said, sure, we appreciate the money, but it's not the same. You going and giving of your own time and your own talent on the mission field means so much more. When those teams come, guess what happens? They go home with excitement. They tell their church family, and their church family gets more excited about missions, and more gets done uh, for Christ as a result of that. Have you ever been to see a missionary, gone to a foreign field to get a small taste of missions? Maybe the Lord is calling you to full-time missions, but you've been afraid to accept that call. Are you willing? In our first couple of years on the mission field, my daughter Emily, after facing several trials, she couldn't sleep. As I mentioned, she calls me saying there are men with guns uh, at our home. Uh, we were evicted from our home uh, for no reason caused by us. All of our worldly goods thrown on the street. These are things that a little girl can't forget. Uh, we had missionary friends in the community that thieves broke into the home when they were there. A home invasion came in through a bathroom window. Uh, the girl was sleeping. They rolled her up in her blankets, beat her with a stick, and said, if you move, 
we're going to hurt you. And they stole all her things. Another missionary uh, nurse, they came into her compound, grabbed the security guard, came to her door and said, we will murder your guard if you don't open the door. As soon as she opened the door, they broke her arm with a pipe because they wanted money. So Emily seen all this, heard all this, and she cannot sleep at night. And so she's constantly coming into our room at night in tears. And as a dad, I can't fix that. There's no Band-Aid for that. Again, I can deal with my own personal fear, my personal struggles, but I can't take care of someone else's in the same way. So that really put a burden on my heart. And the Lord put Psalm 56.3 into my heart. And I I contemplated it and just prayed over it. And the Lord allowed me to write a poem I'm going to share with you that I I printed out, I laminated it, and I put it beside her bed. So it would be something that when she was afraid, she could read. Try and read that for you tonight. To I mean today, it's not night yet. I haven't preached that long. All right. What time I am afraid I will trust in Thee, by Daddy. When I grow weary and worn, new fear each minute born. Of distant country I yearn, yet too far to return. I will trust in Thee. When in the night gloom settles in, silence brings a garish din, and terror does my heart sing. No one near to cling. I will trust in thee. When in shadow tremor, in this I must remember, none his love can sever. His eye is on me ever. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Let's pray. Grace Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have of serving you. We thank you for being able to give the good news to those who are lost. I pray that you would help us to be willing to go to those hard-to-reach places, those difficult places, the places that are filled with fear. I pray that you would help us to trust in you so much that we're able to overcome our fear. We're able to uh, share the gospel in those hard places. We thank you uh, for the fruit uh, that you've shown throughout the years uh, because of willingness. I thank you for those who have prayed for us, who have been committed to holding the rope since we've been in Zambia. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.